Welcome back to the Plowcast. I'm Peter Mobson, Editor-in-Chief of Plow. And I'm Susanna Black, Senior Editor at Plow. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, about many things, and with Plow's own Maureen Swinger about her piece, Doing Bach Badly. Rowan Williams was the 104th Archbishop of Canterbury, a position he held from 2002 to 2012. He is also a theologian, a poet, and in case you didn't know, a playwright. And his new collection of plays, Shake Shaft and Other Plays, was recently published by Slant Books. Welcome, Dr. Williams. So, you know, the occasion for this is this book, which I will show to the camera, and which we will drop a link to, um, I guess, in the show notes. I, I'm not sure that I'd known that you were a playwright, um, but these were three really unusual and in one case pretty strange um, plays. The third, Lazarus, is, is sort of more, uh, um, I, I don't know, it's, it, it reminds me of a fragment from um, a Dorothy from Dorothy Sayers' um, The Man Who Would Be King. Like, it's got that flavor to it. And it was wonderful. Um, but the, and then the second, I think we'll talk about at some point, Pete has an interesting related anecdote. But the first one, the, the play called Shake Shaft, there were so many sort of things that it sort of felt impossible not to be reminded of. Um, for me, it was obviously Man for All Seasons. Um, the, the flavor, especially of the kind of central debate um, between Will, young Will Shakespeare, Shake Shaft, who is actually Will Shakespeare, and um, the uh, Jesuit in hiding, Edmund Campion, who's, who's staying at this house that Will is sort of faux apprenticed at. Um, just reminded me so much of the kind of debate between Moore and Roper, that kind of central debate. And the other thing that it actually reminded me of was um, the Grand Inquisitor episode. Really, yes. Yes, well, you, yeah. you, you, you keyed into two very important texts for me. I actually acted in A Man Full Seasons when I was a student. Can you talk about the play and just sort of how it, how it came to be and what was going through your mind and where you were drawing from? Well, um, it began really reading a book about the Lost Years of Shakespeare by um, Ernst Honigmann of Manchester University, which sets out the case for identifying the Will Shakespeare mentioned in the 16th century will with Shakespeare. Now, most scholars now don't actually think this is um, a very strong case, but, you know, I just thought, well, why not? And what if? Because I think that's rather what you do if you're trying to write imaginative stuff at all. But it began as a play with the, the simple question, well, if they were there in the same house, what would the Jesuit martyr and the, the young future playwright have to say to each other? So the first scene to be written was the, the longish, um, I suppose, not confrontation, but engagement between the two of them. That is one of the, I suppose, the key moments in the play. And the rest followed. And what, what I found extraordinary was how relatively easy it was to, to listen the work into being. I, I, could, I could sense the characters stepping forward and, and speaking. And I know it sounds slightly weird, but it was a bit, it was more like listening than making it up. But they, they had some logic and some energy of their own and surprised me a bit at certain moments. Well, it certainly seemed like that. And that, that central conversation... Uh, just to for our listeners, this is the teenage Shakespeare, who's uh, a servant at a large estate uh, in northern England, uh, where 
the Jesuit priest Campion, Edmund Campion, is in hiding under a disguised name. And he, of course, is at risk of his life because Queen Elizabeth I is uh, executing Catholic priests, especially Jesuits, uh, who are in the country. Uh, it's viewed as automatic high treason. You compared, you compared them to ISIS fighters, essentially. That was kind of the way that they were thought of. These dangerous, subversive, um, and like extremely um, just sort of foreign agents, essentially. And it's this fascinating uh, discussion between Will, who is, of course, Shakespeare, and Campion, who is a believer in a truth that requires shutting certain voices out of his head, um, if only so that he can face the scaffold, uh, I guess, with, with sanity and courage. Yes, I, I think in, in the play I really wanted to give full weight to both voices. Campion, as you say, knows that for his own sanity, in a sense, he has to, he has to focus. He has to say, well, only one thing matters here. But he's also saying, it is possible by martyrdom and heroic witness to turn the clock back. We, we could go back to the days when we took faith for granted. And Will, although he's a sort of Catholic, doesn't really believe that, and you can see he's he's drifting away from the assumption you can turn the clock back. But if you're not going to turn the clock back to the age of faith, what's left? Is it just stuff that you draw out of your own insides? And as you will notice, that's one of the images that kind of haunts the, the play. Can you make the world out of your own insides? And will is not saying that. But he can't quite say what Campion says. So I see Will as really standing right on the fault line between traditional faith and not agnosticism exactly, but a, a very troubled and um, almost anchorless position. And just by balancing that, it's, it's no accident that in the very last scene of the play, there's quite a lot of reference in the the metaphors to wooden nails. I I identify thoroughly with both of these voices. Like they were both, they both, while they were speaking, got me. And, you know, so it was campy in the sort of, um, you know, it, it, it's not a rigid or dour, you know, or formal faith. It's just actual Christian faith. It's faith in, but it's, but it's a very uh, Catholic faith in that it's inflected through there's this script, there's the script essentially of the mass, of the mass in Latin, which is kind of the thing that's at the back there, at least it seems to me. And if, and you're, you're throwing yourself on the reality of what's going on through that script, that that's not a man-made script, that these are the words that Christ gave us and the reality that they bring into being is the reality that we are depending on. And so that's kind of one, on one side, one of the, the voices. And I was like, yes, okay, I will go full... Anglo-Catholic, or maybe I'm becoming Catholic as I'm reading this. Um, and then on the other hand, it's not actually Protestantism. It doesn't quite feel like Protestantism. It feels more like Shakespeare as Renaissance humanist self-creation type of person who is maybe getting, going to be getting to something that is a Christian faith that is, um, it's kind of trusting God to bring harmony out of 
a more confused under or a more sort of varied understanding of um, truths or aspect versions of Christianity or something like that. that that's that's exactly it um, on two fronts. Certainly, um, Dostoevsky's idea of polyphony in writing, that is, you really try to let the voices have their head. You don't, you don't um, load the dice when you're writing a dialogue. You try to give full respect to the different voices and let something come out of it. That's very important. But also, you're quite right. Shakespeare's not meant to be a, a Protestant. He's meant to be somebody who, who just wonders what to do with religious orthodoxy in a world where increasingly it's not, it's not getting traction or it doesn't seem to contain the range of experience. And Shakespeare also knows in the play, I think, that his, his perspective is not everything, which is why I, <clears throat> I made him kiss Campion's hand at the end of the dialogue, by way of farewell. And he recognizes Campion's as speaking for, for something essential. It's just that he can't quite find the words or find the space for it. And likewise, Campion can't quite find the words or the space for the way Shakespeare enters into, absorbs, realizes the life of so many chaotic others in his imagination. So I, I wanted them to be not exactly complementary, but really you know, engage with one another. And it does seem to me that um, I, the, the debate between the two, which on such a weird level did feel like a debate between voices that I've heard in my head before, almost. Um, it's also kind of the debate of, or it's like, you know, in converting as an adult, there's this like, what do you do? I was basically a Shakespearean before I was a Campionian. I was like, I was a humanist. I was raised on, you know, literature and, and so forth before I was a Christian. And so then when you convert, you sort of have these moments of, or these questions, and I, I think I can remember thinking about this in terms of Shakespeare in particular, like what do I do with the huge variety of like good and evil and passionate and, um, you know, unorthodox and orthodox, just human experience and supernatural elements and just like all of every, that whole huge sense of the panoply of um, humanist like writing that kind of is represented in Shakespeare. What do I do with all of this? Is there room for this in my Christianity? Is there room for it? That's the key question. I think. Can we have a fundamentally orthodox Christianity, which, which has room for this, where you can see that all these rivers somehow find their way to the sea? Possibly this is why I ended up Anglican. <laughs> Possibly it's the reason I ended up Anglican too, but that's another story. <laughs> Well, as the as the Anabaptist in the room, um, <laughs> what I what I I mean I I you know I I agree with what what's been just said. I I was thinking of something else though in terms of Campion's voice, uh, because there's a way in which the voice of a martyr of someone prepared to literally die for uh, a set of teachings that can be denied or recanted, that have very little to do possibly with their own human experience, mm -hmm. um, but they're unwilling to relinquish, is extremely um, difficult for 
the contemporary mind to kind of wrap wrap our heads around. Um, I had to think of Brad Gregory's book from some years ago, Salvation at Stake, where he writes about martyrs of the Reformation era, Catholic, Protestant, and Anabaptist. Um, and uh, one observation, and I'm, I had to think of this as I read Campion, who of course is representing a, a, a Catholic form of martyrdom, um, but uh, Brad Gregory observes in this book that the closer they came to the point of their actual martyrdom, um, almost uh, the more the, tr the, yeah. the particular inflection of their faith that they were dying for, mm -hmm. uh, I will not say it didn't matter because that's what they were dying for, but at the stake, uh, they were talking about Jesus. Yeah. They weren't talking about a particular doctrine of uh, the Mass or so on. I think that's an important insight. Um, Campion and other Jesuit martyrs, in their sermons or their statements to the crowd on the scaffold, that's the kind of thing they say. You know, we're, we're dying for the Christian faith. It's not some local eccentricity of ours. It's not some yeah. corruption. We're dying for, for Christ. And that's the appeal they make. And it's a bit like Thomas More. Again, after his condemnation, he who had been a ferocious persecutor of heretics, he says to his judges, may we all meet merrily in heaven. As if, you know, something has opened up, something's been released in that, that moment of ultimate seriousness, which is greater than any, any partisan position and which I think always tells against the way in which we so easily weaponize martyrs and say, well, you know, we must be right because so-and-so died for what we believe. And that shows you're wrong, which doesn't really work in the Reformation because everybody dies, if you know what I mean. Right. One of the, the books that we published um, a couple of years ago was The 21. Um, so it was Martin Mosebach's book about the 21 yeah, martyrs and just the... The moment where, I mean, there's, you know, 20 of them are... These are the Coptic martyrs right. who died uh, a number of years ago in Libya. Right, who were killed by ISIS um, fighters. And 20 of them were Coptic, you know, Christians. And then one of them was probably a Catholic. Um, and they, he said, you know, in, in the face of, you know, he was around these people who were about to be killed as Christians. And he said, I'm a Christian like them. Like that's, that's I, I think that that was the phrase that he was reported to have said. And so he's actually considered, although he was a Catholic, um, most likely, he's considered a, a martyr in the Coptic Christian church, which is pretty extraordinary. That's right. That's right. And something like that is often said about the, the martyrs of Uganda in the 19th century, both Anglican and Catholic. They, they were all pages of the, the king's court. Um, they died within days of each other. And when Pope Paul VI went to Uganda back in the 1960s, was it? He rather made a point of celebrating them all together. You know, it's something that, uh, especially the modern martyrs, uh, illustrate in a particularly strong way. And uh, that's another thing I had to think as I read the play is, you know, um, this has such, such modern uh, resonance. Susanna mentioned the Coptic martyrs. 
Um, but if we think of the 20th century project of ecumenism, of Christian unity, um, unlike the time of the Reformation, you know, typically uh, the martyrs dying are not dying at the hands of other Christians. Um, it does help illustrate commonalities that are kind of denied. It's better than when we were killing each other, it seems like. I'm not sure that's a thing you're allowed to say, but it does seem like it's better than when we were killing each other. So I wanted to actually say in a more positive way, uh, what does it actually tell us about about, uh, levels of unity that might be there uh, without being acknowledged institutionally? Well, I think if we if we see that the the center of gravity of Christian faith is the wood and the nails, it is that release through the cross into a kind of freedom. Well, that's what martyrdom speaks of and enacts, and that has to be something which resonates with anyone who understands anything at all about Christian faith. Um, and I, I would really underline that element of what I call release just then. I, I've often told the story of meeting somebody in South Africa many years ago when my wife and I were working briefly for a church out there in the apartheid era. And we had a conversation with somebody who had suffered enormously at the hands of the South African government and had given up a great deal for this conviction about apartheid and had risked ostracism imprisonment and death even. And what he said, and I've quoted it so often, is, well, there comes a point, he said, where you know they they can't touch you. You There's something in this which nobody can make any difference to because it's just there. It's just a rock upon which you stand. And I've never forgotten that conversation because it seemed to me that that spelled out why it is that martyrdom speaks across boundaries breaks down certain um, knee-jerk reactions to other kinds of Christian life and and is in itself a sort of ecumenical event. It's an event on behalf of the entire Christian church. There's um, just the, the idea of like finding yourself on somewhere sturdy when everything else has been washed away. That image actually reminds me very much of the last play in this in the book. Um, the the play about Lazarus, the middle play. Um, there's actually it, it's it's a doozy. Um, it's the story of um, this uh, Welsh poet David Jones, who um, was who suffered, who was in the First World War, suffered from shell shock, um, what we would now call PTSD. And nearly married uh, Eric Gill's, one of Eric Gill's daughters. Can you talk about the way that that came to be written? I've, I've been reading David Jones since I was a teenager and admiring both his poetry and his, his artistic work because he was a great letterist and watercolorist as well and engraver. Um, and because he's such a complicated artist and because he, his way of working as an artist is very often to pile layer on layer. I thought the, the worst way of trying to write about David Jones is to write a simple linear story about him. So I imagined a play that would 
be working on several different levels. The bleakness of it is to do with the, the double trauma in Jones's life. There's the trauma of the First World War, which was the raw material of his greatest work in parenthesis, the long, long poem about life in the trenches. And also the trauma of the breakage of his relationship with Petra Gill. But I also wanted to address the, the further traumatic memory, which was that Petra Gill was sexually abused by her father. Nobody knows whether David Jones knew anything about that or not. And I've tried in the play to, to evoke a kind of unease in him, which half recognizes that there's something deeply wrong, but nobody can quite talk about it. Um, so yes, there's, there's a lot of rather dark material in this, and um, it felt risky in some places to write. It felt very risky. But it's also, I mean, it remind, it, 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 it echoed with the Shakespeare play um, in the sense that it's talking about basically what the worthwhileness of art is to a certain degree. This is the, the big disagreement between uh, Eric Gill and David Jones. Uh, Gill had a very strong theory that art always had to be in some sense propaganda. And Jones, right from the beginning, although he's deeply indebted to Gill, says that's not how it works. Art really makes stuff. And by making stuff, it becomes more than just the expression of an idea. It, it attends to the form of the world, the, the sort of shaping intelligibility of the world, all that gives the world structure. It attends to that deep structure and finds that some sorts of deep structure live in more than one physical embodiment. You, you as an artist are finding another embodiment of the form, the energy around you. And his theological reflections on that are tremendously fertile. I think most of what I understand about sacramental theology derives from some of his essays and some of his poems. So there's a real gulf there. Jones, in a sense, for all his obsessiveness, and his, um, he's getting trapped in detail. He does have this sense of art as a deeply releasing thing, because it releases forms and structures to, to live, to reflect, to interact. And one of the images that he often uses is um, freeing the waters to unblock the wellsprings. And the, the poet is doing both a kind of archaeology, digging down in the meanings that have been inherited, and also, yes, unblocking something. And behind it all, within it all, of course, is the central image of the the water screaming from the side of the crucified. There's a lot, there's a sense of, um, you know, as sort of closed off and, and inaccessible in his own pain as he is, he still is able to sort of encounter Petra as someone outside himself and someone who's not just a sort of an embodiment of girl or um, someone who, it, you know, on whom, who can be used in service of a theory um, or an idea he does sort of encounter her. That's it, yes. And part of what I was trying to convey is that Eric Gill's own um, eccentricities, failures, sins, are not unconnected with his 
rigid sense that everything has to have a function. So um, there's a little bit of a, a kind of sidebar debate um, where Petra tests a bit about just being reduced to her function as a woman who has children, and that's all there is to her. And Jones has, has that little bit more sense, as you say, that she she's a subject in her own right. I must confess, in, in writing the play, I, I slightly fell in love with Petra. I found I'd created a character I, I really very much liked because um, I, I could, again, the voice I could hear was this voice on, on the surface, very calm, rather self-possessed. That's what people said about it. But also a very deep irony, quite a lot of pain being, being managed very successfully but not quite silenced. And I, I, I mean, it's sort of, it's a brave, brave woman. Yeah, she's, she's wounded, but she's not destroyed somehow. And that, and that sense of kind of fundamental wholeness, even within her being, even within her pain, or like that comes through, I felt like. I'm glad it comes through because that's what I wanted to go through. And as I say, from accounts of her, even as an old woman, that's a little bit what you, what you get. The figure of Eric Gill uh, really fascinates me, um, you know, and what you just said, um, that he represents almost a kind of aesthetic fundamentalism, uh, you could say, perhaps. Um, just as a very weird side note, um, I should mention, um, of course, his, you know, his very problematic, uh, to say the least, personal life only, I think, came to light much later in, in the 70s or 80s. Um, but back in the 1930s, he was one of the first donors to Plow um, and actually designed Plow's first logo. Uh, and I grew up with uh, a woman, Mariah Marsden, who was an artist who was from his circle, um, who had joined the Bruder Half. Um, and uh, her daughter, actually still contributes art to Plow. So uh, there is... But they also got out um, of his circle for a reason, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, although I, I'm not sure if they ever realized the full story. Um, and in one way, he, he kind of represents an attempt to force... Um, maybe I'm misrepresenting this, but uh, to force this kind of spiritual re reality... Uh, by the rule um, that you could kind of see with a certain kind of a uh, hidebound traditionalism yeah. um, in in religion. Well, maybe. Uh, yeah. Yes, and he's he's a very complicated figure because, on the one hand, he's he is a very dogmatic conservative Roman Catholic. Um, on the other hand, of course, his expression of it in his art and in his um, his interest in church building and liturgy. He really was pushing the envelope at the time, so it's a, a distinctive kind of conservatism. The typeface is sans serif, which if you're going to be traditionalist, you're not going to do that. I mean, I can remember, I'd heard about and, it. And his plow logo actually looks plow very, logo is very nice. Logos, you like yeah, it, right? I love, it's my yeah. favorite of our plow logos, and it really disturbed me when I found out that it was by Eric Gill. I mean, I also, I'd heard about him primarily as a kind of like hanger on to the distributists and sort of carrier out of the kind of vaguely William Morrissey, Ruskin-y project, kind of. And the 
the fact, and then when I heard, like I heard about him before I heard about the, this horrible stuff with his daughters. And I just, it, it's terrifying to think that someone who in some ways like could, it feels like gets so close to the good, the true and the beautiful could be so wrong inside. But isn't that one of, one of the things that we in the 21st century find very, very difficult to get hold of? But sometimes people's vision is consumingly powerful, so consumingly powerful that it, it really knocks them off center. It, it can delude and mislead by its very strength and its very force. And I, I feel Gill's that sort of personality. So, I mean, turning a bit from the um, from the book itself, one of the thing that the things that both, I guess, to a certain degree, the first play, but especially the second, kind of um, one of the questions that it raises is I, the role of beauty in the face of war, or the or the role of um, art in the face of war, and you know. The, the first play as well, like what, what good are plays if you're facing martyrdom? Um, one of the things that we were kind of hoping to you, you talk about is basically how literature and music shouldn't be casualties of war. Um, you know, you, you've written a book on Dostoevsky. We've seen in the last couple of weeks in, in the wake of the invasion of Putin's invasion of Ukraine, um, and we should say that we're we're recording this on March fifteenth. Um, it's going to be released during Holy Week, so the people who are you who are listening to this will know more than we do in, <laughs> about what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. Um, but it's we are in the thick of it now, um, and one of the things that the thick of it has brought is have been these sort of bizarre attempts to cancel Dostoevsky or to deprogram Tchaikovsky music from, you know, from um, planned performances. Um, can you talk about the way, the way that we need to not let art and music be casualties of war? Not to, like, feed you the right answer here. Should we let art and music be casualties of war? Mm. Now, it worries me that we have this, this reaction. If something is ambiguous, if something has mixed consequences, then we just scrub it out. And, and Dostoevsky is a, a good case in point, because of course he is one of the sources of the toxic Russian nationalism, which we see in its most brutal and abusive form in Putin's politics. On the other hand, precisely because Dostoevsky is more than a propagandist, back to the Gill-Jones debate, He's an artist, he's not a propagandist. In his novels, he allows all the voices to be heard. He doesn't predetermine your answer. We read Dostoevsky, I think, not to get a, a series of you know, edifying quotations, fridge magnets. We read him to be involved in the debates he's involved in. And you mentioned the Grand Inquisitor a bit earlier. And that's, that's such an important piece of, of literature, because in that, um, I suppose, call it a fantasy or a fable, 
in the last, longest, possibly greatest of his novels. There you have naked, unaccountable power confronted with the silence of Christ and the protest that the Inquisitor makes representing power is freedom is too difficult. It says to Jesus, you've made it too difficult for us. So we are mopping up after you. Unfortunately, you, you failed to give us the program. Um, so we have to provide it. And you know, when I look at the idea that you can coerce society into faith, and look at all the ideas of that close alliance of church and state, which is true in Russia now and has been true in so many other places in history, you think, well, it, it is all the Inquisitor's business. The Inquisitor constantly saying to Jesus, you didn't leave us a program. We've, we've had to supply it. And, you know, it's, it's hard work. And don't think we enjoy this, but we've got to do it because we didn't take the trouble. Now, Dostoevsky can come up with all of that alongside the, well, at times, the, the nonsense of his nationalistic fantasies. And you've just got to see the person whole. That's really hard, and, and you just do not deal with that by saying, forget it, obliterate it. And in times of war and crisis, what do we need most? We need resources that free us to spend time with and attend to the humanity of whoever is outside the circle. It almost returns us to the need for that polyphony of human voices that we spoke about in terms of Shakespeare. Yeah. But, but it's also deeply rooted in, in the nature of the body of Christ. I suppose this, this is one of the theological themes I come back to most often in my own reflection, that the body of Christ is about my defects, my lack, always being supplied by the overflow of God's gift to the other, effects and the lack in them being supplied by the overflow of God's gifts in me. So no isolated person, no isolated community knows or experiences the whole truth unless they are open to that in one another. Now, that's not a political program, but it is a spiritual challenge. And all good art reminds me of what I don't know, what I can't put into words, what I can't theorize, what I can't turn into a, again, a fridge magnet. It reminds me that I'm still learning. And so art keeps me humble in Australia. It keeps us humble. Humble not in the sense of self-deprecating, but humble in the sense of I'm still learning. And I'm hungry to learn. So if we, we turn our backs on art in times of crisis, we're always in danger of just freezing what we're comfortable with yet again, which is the human default position. So it seems like that what you were just speaking of this need for many voices of, of recognizing our own lack and insufficiency both as, as individuals and the insufficiency of our communities to which we belong mm -hmm. often is kind of thought of sloppily as you know that's just sort of classical liberalism right where when actually there's something deeply christian about the need for the body to have many members. I mean, this is, this is classic St. Paul. Yeah. It's the difference between, if you're like shrugging your shoulders at somebody else's difference and asking yourself, what do I have to learn from that difference? It doesn't mean I have to agree. It doesn't mean I have to think that the disagreements 
and trivial, but it does mean I'm called to spend the time asking, what have I got to learn? What do I need to learn? From this person, this community. And it, that's hard work. Whereas <clears throat> the, the sort of indifferentist liberalism just says well, it doesn't much matter what anybody um, says or thinks, so I just let them go their own way. So between those two extremes of indifferentist liberalism and totalitarian enforced unity, <clears throat> there is this real interactive, and I, I hope and trust creative engagement with real difference of the cost of it. I mean, there's also a sense, I think, that one of the differences between a sort of classical liberal version of that um, openness and a more sort of Christian version, I guess, would be something like, it's almost, <laughs> I mean, the the one, the one that we are kind of all sort of describing different aspects of, or the one that we, um, the, the one body and the one, the one Lord, who we're all kind of getting at different aspects of in our, from our different bizarre communal perspectives and our different bizarre individual perspectives, that unity is found in him. That unity is not necessarily found in a kind of structure that we mold ourselves into. Um, I, I think I might feel more Protestant again <laughs> than I did earlier. I agree very much. I, I think the, the idea that in some sense the unity of the church always already exists is important for It's just that we, we forget it, we deny it, we avoid it. But it, the unity is there because Christ is there. And sometimes, something I often say to theological students, students preparing for ministry, is just remember that the church exists because God wants it to, not because you or anybody else has decided that it should. It's there because God wants it. What I was just thinking in light of all of this about was the, the way that orthodoxy, um, you know, orthodox Christians and Catholics in Ukraine and primarily orthodox Christians in Russia are split from each other by this war and how it's in wars that we're kind of most strongly tempted to deny the reality of our unity in Christ. And it's also in wars, in time of war, that we need to most insist on it. Um, and I just, I wonder whether you sort of had any thoughts about that. Yeah, that rings a lot of bells. One of the reasons I've always been an opponent of nuclear armaments is that I can't, I can't, as it were, put my signature as a voting member to any system that systematically and deliberately, programmatically creates a policy whose effect is the obliteration of a large portion of the human race, including a large portion of our fellow Christians. I cannot see that there is any moral justification for that. And in times of war where you know, people face hideous choices, Christians have to be there in various roles in various ways, whether as non-competent or as, depending on people's consciences, uncomfortable competence, saying, yep, the one thing we mustn't forget is that at the very, very, very best, this is 
are tearing apart what God is going together. The very best and the worst, a real kind of collusion with that, rebellion against what God has given. This is, um, this is our Holy Week podcast. And um, I'm not sure if I'd, I think I'd almost like to ask you to end with a prayer <laughs> um, for our listeners and, and for um, the world and, and for, you know, for this upcoming Easter. Um, it seems like I, I, I'm, I have a sort of fantasy or hope um, that when this goes out, by the time this goes out, things will be resolved. And, and I don't know, you know, I don't know when the kind of Lent of this war is going to be over. Um, but do you think that you could pray for that? God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you have bound us together in his body, needing one another, hungry and thirsty for one another, and so hungry and thirsty for your justice, your peace, and your kingdom. In this Paschal season, keep our hunger and thirst acute. Help us to long with all our being for peace and for justice, and so to long with all our being for reconciliation with one another. Touch the hearts of those who believe they can live and win battles, kill and abuse and oppress, and still be healing. Open the healing fountains for them. Make them human. Help them to join in the community of true exchange, gift and hope. And Father, keep us always faithful to where you have placed us. In a world of contradictions, temptations and tensions. Hold us there in the middle of that feet planted upon the rock, the rock of crucified and risen Jesus, in whose name we make our prayer. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And now a huge welcome to our dear colleague, Maureen Swinger, who's here to talk about her piece in this issue, Doing Bach Badly. Welcome, Maureen. Before we get into our conversation with Maureen, we're now in the season of Lent, and it's a time when much sacred music is classical music. You think of the big pieces, the seven last words, there's cantatas, oratorios. One of the most famous of them, of course, and arguably uh, the summit, the peak, the top thing in all Western classical music is the St. Matthew Passion by J.S. Bach, an absolutely stunning um, architectural piece that tells the story of Jesus' passion and death. It mixes um, an old tradition that came from the Middle Ages of telling the story of the passion based on Scripture, uh, which over time, during the medieval period, um, rather than just having one priest or celebrant tell the story or actually chant the story, they started getting other people involved uh, to take on the different parts. So there's a Peter, and there's a Judas, and there's um, the high priest Caiaphas, and there is uh, 
a crowd. It's an operatic. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, and so these different groups would start participating in the chant, and it became almost a, a bit theatrical, right? Um, by the time Bach inherited the form of the Passion, um, they were also working in aspects of the Reformation. So they worked in chorales where the entire congregation could respond to the story at different points uh, by singing usually one verse from a well-known chorale. So as the, the genre of the Passion evolved, it became more and more participatory, but also more and more um, not just telling the story, uh, but focused on how it would edify, how it would pur you know, in a way a bit like Greek tragedy would purge the souls of those participating in it. Anyway, um, I've been talking for a while, but I think it's important to understand your piece, Maureen, that, you know, Bach wrote this as a participatory communal event. Now, in modern days, of course, the St. Matthew Passion, like most of classical music, is just one of these enormous, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's like an ocean liner. It's, it's, it's like a classical music ocean liner that scares the bejesus out of people. It's enormous. It's huge. It's sprawling. It seems like super high art. And the all the sort of cultural conventions that have sort of built, grown up around classical music, the quiet concert hall, it's not in a church anymore, there's no congregational singing, there's not a, there's not a sermon in the midst of it, um, it's something that you have to be very serious around, it's such a sacred high art object that you sort of have to whisper and um, it's assumed that it's going to be boring. Um, and it's only for the kinds of people who listen to classical music in the first place, right? And it takes three hours. And it takes three hours. And, like, why would you do that unless you're a super high-minded, very high-culture person? Um, that can be the reaction from a lot of people. Um, and so this is where Maureen's piece jumps in because she tells the story of what it's like with a really super amateur choir. Right, Maureen? The least. Yes. yes. And also, from my own perspective as a young person, I was not completely in love with classical music at all. Our family didn't grow up immersed in the classical world as, as you did. And, uh, and still, you can come to love and embrace this piece and be completely surprised by it from a very young age. Um, it can sneak up on you and, and enter your heart in a, in a way that changes your life, but you have to be there to have mm -hmm. experienced it. And I think singing it, is integral to that yeah. as opposed to listening to it. I've done a little bit of this kind of Bruderhof singing as a non-Bruderhof person because I was up here for um, a rehearsal uh, for the Hallelujah Chorus a couple of weeks ago or a couple months ago, I guess now. That's right. We were in the alto section together. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I can sort of picture what this is a little bit like, but I've never you know, been to uh, a St. Matthew Passion rehearsal. So why don't you just describe what this is that you guys do um, and maybe give a little bit of background to like how the Bruderhof came to do music in this way um, and as you talked about it in your piece. Okay, and Pete can jump in as well. Um, in the 60s, a lot of these pieces came back to our communities and especially when the English translations became more available and I know that your grandfather, Peter, uh, especially loved St. Matthew's Passion uh, uh, and it was part of our culture from the beginning to know these pieces, of course, 
from our German roots. Uh, so in, in the early years of the, of the Woodcrest community, they had an amazing choir ready to go. And they worked very, very hard for hours, uh, every, you know, tw several times a week sometimes, as mm -hmm. they were in the Lenten season or the Advent season, to own these pieces, to learn them, to drill them. And I think in later years, we haven't kept up that standard nearly as well, but it's something that has been a part of our communal worship mm -hmm. from definitely from the very beginnings. And then... Yeah, I, th I think that's exactly it. The These pieces, by whatever accidents of history, have just become, uh, certainly during holy week have become part of our community's liturgy this is this is how we one of the key ways that we s celebrate passion tide mm -hmm. is by singing through this stuff but it's a completely different approach to these pieces than the one that is dominant when you hear a performance right um because the purpose is not to get to the performance the the purpose is mm -hmm. to get together once a week or twice a week, you know, in the weeks leading up to Easter, in this case of the Matthew Passion, or to Christmas, um, or at other times of the year, and sing them. So this is really, this functions, from what I can tell, really as a liturgy um, in the community. And these are these are worship services, basically, these rehearsals. And that's how you would come, and actually, as you invite your children to join you at the practice, mm -hmm. you're saying this is something special for our community, mm -hmm. this is like a worship meeting. Mm -hmm. And if whether we're singing a, an angry mob or a chorale that's expressing grief, or as Peter was mentioning earlier, it's it's so many of those words are talking about me at, on the spot. Mm -hmm. Make thee clean my heart from mm -hmm. sin, or I would beside my Lord be watching. Mm -hmm. It's it's um, and when you're singing that as opposed to listening to it, you you are there on the spot, whether right. you uh, were expecting to be or not. You yeah. can't help but be in the moment be in the passion. As I was reading your piece, it just sounded, it, it reminded me of that. It reminded me of the sort of transformative power of just inhabiting the word of God because so much of the text is just, is from scripture. Is that, and you also sort of talk about um, a pretty transformative moment in your own life that had to do with singing through this. Right, and again, I wasn't, at, at age 15, it's not necessarily your favorite thing to do. And so, you know, nothing was different back then, and I, I came because that's what where we were that evening, and I was prepared to be bored, mm -hmm. you know, as, as any many teenagers would. Um, and listening to the technicalities and, and getting tired of the director over-explaining the technicalities, and then this one gorgeous moment that just pops right out of a tenor solo after Jesus was crucified, um, when the whole choir, both choirs get to sing the lines, truly this was the Son of God. And if you, if our listeners haven't had a chance to hear that, just pull it up. Um, it's, it's the most incredible, I think it's the central point of the entire piece. And it comes after an extremely turbulent uh, moment in the, where the tenor is singing all about the temple veil being rent and the earthquakes, and it sounds exactly like an earthquake in the Rip temple veil and so on, but you're not you're not ready for this moment when suddenly the whole earth comes to a standstill, and the centurion of all people realizes mm -hmm. the man that I just saw put to death is the son of God, and I I will say it mm -hmm. for all on the hilltop to hear, and then we are the ones saying it and acknowledging it, and I still can't hear that 
part of the St. Matthew's Passion without tearing up because it still takes me right back to that mm -hmm. moment as a young person where I just literally could have hit the deck with surprise and shock that the, it's the first time this truth came home to me, I think. And really the overall purpose of, of your article, uh, Maureen, it's not to highlight, you know, some cultural oddity of, of, of the Bruderhof, but you know, there's a wider point that we've been talking about in, in these episodes, the importance of, of music to shape one's own soul, right? Or, and to shape a community. And you, you really only do that by participating in it, by doing it. Um, and you don't need to have a trained voice. You don't need to have a trained orchestra or a choir. Uh, you, don't even need, you don't need to be raised as Christian to, to sing Heart the Herald Angels Sing, right? But if it's something that one does, it kind of takes on a life of its own. Yeah. yeah, it's very much, it feels to me very much like there's something going on with, you know, we, we breathe music. Like we, we are, our breath kind of inhabits music and um, when we sing. And that, that's, you know, there's, the Holy Spirit does something with that in a weird way a lot of times. I and think. I think we have to give ourselves a chance to be there. We may not. We might be very surprised by where God hits us, but mm -hmm. we kind of have to show up to be there and be even a reluctant part of it mm -hmm. for that to happen to us. One of the other things that really struck me about your piece, Maureen, is something about it. It Again, I don't mean to like be like, this is a weird thing about the Bruderhof, but it is kind of. Um, which is the way that you guys as a community experience time is really distinctive. So, and I've noticed this with like the way that Plow has worked. So the magazine was started like, along with the publishing house, like 100 years ago, a little more than 100 years ago. And it keeps kind of, you know, a new generation will kind of take it up again and breathe new life into it and, and get it going again, as you did. Um, and it sounds like this kind of, you know, singing through this is, is a similar kind of thing where, like, every now and then there will be a new movement to kind of start it up again. And there was one line, I forget, maybe it was Jay, your, your husband Jason, who's the conductor, who said it, but, like, you know, if we want to be good at this in 10 years, we got to work hard now. And that was just a really distinctively, weirdly Bruderhof thing to say. <laughs> you can't just pick that up out of nowhere. There has to be some continuity and work From involved to, to keep something yeah. this big and this old and this eternal actually alive. You can't yeah. just say, well, we may not be inspired right now, so let's leave it. I, I don't want to believe that. Yeah. I mean, also, you do kind of need to get it in your like the 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 weird like shock of recognition or like opening of your eyes that happens at some point like you need to have the familiarity for the unfamiliar unfamiliarity to hit you i know as you were describing the whole history of the um of the same matthew passion and like where that came from and like what you're talking about is like the history of passion plays so like oberammergau and like all of those kind of medieval very fairly amateur um you know, participatory dramas that use the word the words of scripture, um, and just thinking about what Wagner was trying to do in creating an opera that was something like this. Like there was there was he he wanted to like, um, in a slightly creepy way, in my opinion, like try to create a um, a religious experience. A religious experience, not a Christian religious experience, but a religious experience that was very much, you know, liturgical in some way, but obviously, like, nobody's, you know, amateur, nobody's doing Wagner badly. And it wouldn't be as, I don't think it would work as well. No, no, and, 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 and this, 
and this is the point that we're trying to get at with our whole issue, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, because nobody does Wagner ballad badly. You yeah. don't you don't build community by doing Ring of the Nibelungen just for the joy of immersing yourself in Wagnerian harmonies, as yeah. wonderful as they sometimes can be. Yeah. Because there's no there there, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, actually, behind them, yeah. I mean, unless you really believe in in some creepy Germanic paganism, which yeah. you know. Yeah. Like, you probably shouldn't unless, you know, um, you got other problems. Um, (laughs) Although my dad did make me go to the ring cycle when I was probably, like, nine at the Met. And, like, he just made me do it. And and he let me read, though, so it was fine. It was was suffering. I suffered. We kind of started our this podcast series with with Plato on music. Mm -hmm. And he, he talks about... And this is where I think Plato, as much as he's been criticized yeah. for being this kind of musical censor, was right on the money, where he says musical training is the most important because it communicates directly to the soul. It has direct access to our emotional life. It shapes us. It turns us into who we are. And I think the story that, you know, you've told Maureen is, is exactly that, how music, not necessarily right at the moment, it's not only a matter of, you know, having these sublime experiences every time that you encounter music, but over a lifetime, as Plato, you know, yeah. implied by talking about training, not about, you know, a singular aesthetic experience, right? But over a lifetime of doing music, it kind of shapes who you are, and then it's there for you. And I think, you know, not not to be morbid, but, but having been near um, people who are at the end of their lives, mm-hmm. it's music. It's the songs, it's the hymns that they've sung maybe have sung distractedly maybe have they didn't even like them that much right but at the end those are the things that's what they ask for yeah and um while i don't think everything about life should be preparing you know for death uh it does kind of indicate what really matters and what you should maybe focus on so i mean I, I think we're going to probably try and drop some of these links to um, various pieces of um, the St. Matthew Passion in the, uh, on the, in the sort of podcast notes. Um, but I just, I would encourage you to, I don't, like, do, do people do a participatory St. Matthew Passion other than the Bruderhof the way that they I don't know, but I know that here in our area, um, our local Philharmonic uh, does a participatory Messiah every year right. um, that we join in. So if you can't find the St. Matthew Passion, you can definitely find those. They're easier to discover. Mm-hmm. And I kind of just encourage more people to try it yeah. um, and, and work, chip away at it. Yeah. You know, you don't need to do it all at once. You know, do a few pieces. Do a little, do a little bit. And then next year, a little more. It's, yeah. uh, it, it's worth it. Maybe in 10 years, you can get through it all. <laughs> Thanks, Maureen. It was great to join you today. (laughs) Really good to talk. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this and check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $32 a year gets you the print magazine. For $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership brings a range of benefits from free books to regular calls with editors, invitations to special events, and the occasional gift. Go to plow.com to learn more. And join us next week to talk with Plow friends Phil Christman and Joey Keegan about post-punk and new wave music, Christian hardcore music, and their misspent youths, as well as with Plow editor Joy Clarkson about her new book, 
aggressively happy. Till then. 